I'm super stoked. I'm ready to have like zero emission flight. Am I like part of the broad society? Is that something you guys think about on a regular basis? Yeah, we think about it. And we think really uh, from the objective standpoint, hydrogen can actually be made safer as fuel than jet fuel. Hello, everyone. It's two days after Pi Day, and on brand with being nerdy, today's episode is one Bill Nye the Science Guy would be proud of. I'm asking the question, do I need to stop flying? And in case you missed our first two episodes, both of our guests, Dan and Mimi, have gone out of their way not to fly. Dan went out of his way not to fly for 14 years. On today's show, I'm interviewing the founder of a hydrogen electric airplane company. It's a mouthful and it's a little complicated, but we're going to dive deep through the episode. He's the person who's working to ensure we can fly guilt-free. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm on a journey to bring the world closer to net zero emissions. As the Net Zero Life team has been working on today's episode, I've been reflecting on what I learned from the first two episodes. For me, the key takeaways are that one, everything starts with data. You can't change what you can't measure. And two, you can use that data to inform your decisions by making changes in your lifestyle. For the parts of your lifestyle you can't or aren't ready to change, you can use carbon offsets to reduce, although not eliminate, your carbon footprint. So for this episode, I calculated my emissions from flying in 2020. And if you want to do the same, check out the show notes. The calculator's in there. For me, it was 1,767 kilograms of carbon, or about 2 tons. For reference, according to Ren's carbon footprint calculator, my 2020 footprint was 23.6 tons making flying 7.5% of my carbon footprint. That is two times the world's annual flying footprint, which is approximately 2-3% to of humanity's emissions. And that includes passenger, cargo, private, and military flying, whereas mine is just passenger. I love to fly. It's the reason I became an aerospace engineer and started my career working for Boeing. When people ask me how flying works, I often answer PFM, pure effing magic. Flying is something that I dreamed of as a kid. I wanted to get my airplane license before I got my car license, although that didn't happen. And when I think about my like, classes and my textbooks and, and all the stuff that helped me understand just a little bit, I mean, you know, only an undergraduate degree, how flying works, it, it really is remarkable. And every time I get in the airplane, it, it brings me joy, which makes me confused in terms of trying to live a net zero life. One of the things I'm exploring in this net zero journey is how much of the responsibility is on me, the consumer, and how much of it is on the airline or the manufacturer to innovate its way to zero emissions and the government to create policies that help the airline achieve zero carbon flying. Regardless of where the responsibility lies, I believe informed consumers will drive the aviation market in the right direction. Because frankly, I'm not ready to give up flying. And at the same time, I feel a responsibility to the earth to ensure that I'm not contributing to its demise. I am though, and that's why we're doing this episode about sustainable flying and the physics, chemistry, and people who are going to make it happen. Flying helps me live in a place I love to call home, but also see my family 3,000 miles away multiple times a year. Would I be willing to pay more for zero carbon flying? I think so, but hard to say until the choice is right in front of me. Today on the show, I'm joined by Val Miftikov, CEO and founder of Zeroavia and a Russian Olympic champion. 
Zero Avia is a leader in zero emissions aviation, focused on hydrogen electric aviation solutions. Based in London and California, Zero Avia has already secured experimental certificates for its two prototype aircraft across the US and the UK regulatory environments. They've passed significant flight test milestones and they're on track for commercial operations in 2023. A lot to unpack there. Buckle up, exit row seaters, because this episode is going to get technical. In the meantime, here's a few tidbits to help you along the way during the episode. Fuel cells versus batteries. Fuel cells produce the energy while a battery just stores the energy and delivers it when it's asked to. We could spend hours talking about this, so check out the show notes if you want more details. For now, just recognize that they're different from a chemical reaction standpoint. When we talk about quantum entanglement, we're joking about being in two places at the same time. When we say airline operator, we mean airline, like one of my favorites, Southwest. I mean, how can you not love them? Even their stock ticker is love. The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a group of super smart people who are providing the United Nations with science on how not to destroy the world. One last thing. I work for Amazon, and Amazon invested in Zero Avia through their Climate Pledge Fund. Remember that everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of Amazon. It's also not investment advice or anything else like that that can get me sued. All right, let's do it. Val, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining. Before we get into you, Zeravia, hydrogen, all the above, I'd love to start talking about you a little bit. And I thought the first place we could go is the Russian Physics Olympics. You're a two-time champion. <laughs> uh, what does that entail? Uh, I, I imagine, um, you know, it's quite a, quite a feat. Do we have something similar in the U.S.? Have you competed internationally as well? Um. Yeah, so uh, let's see. Um, I started uh, getting pretty interested in physics at around uh, the sixth grade, I think. Uh, before that, I was really interested in math. And then um, uh, we had a, a, a sort of change of the head uh, uh, teacher um, at our class, and he was a, a pretty good physicist, uh, physics um, uh, teacher, and um, I got very interested. He noticed my interest and started pushing, uh, pushing me to go to uh, you know various competitions, enroll into um, like a, a remote, uh, yeah, remote school before it uh, it was cool, I guess, um, where uh, we would would. Get subscribed to the uh, to the problem books, um, and they would come from Moscow, uh, and then we would you know, I would solve them, and then you would send them. They would grade them and all that kind of stuff. So um, that got me interested, and then the natural progression is sort of okay. Well, we have this um, city Olympics um, uh, for just a citywide competition. It was a small city, maybe uh, like a hundred thousand people. Uh, so I won that. I'm like, ah, that's cool. Um, you know, then you go for a regional and win that. Uh, then go for, uh, um, you know, they they had this, um, I guess, divisions of Russian uh, Republic. You go for that and then they win that. And then you go for the national. Um, and I won that. So uh, that was that was pretty cool. Uh, so I did it twice in a row. Um, went to the uh, Soviet Union Olympics. Yeah. Um, uh, after that, yeah, didn't win those. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the Russian Federation was, uh, was all good. 
That's awesome. I love that. So you, you got two degrees uh, from Russia and then you come over to the US to pursue your PhD at physics in Princeton, but then you're also in San Francisco. So like, do you have quantum entanglement going on? How are you both at Princeton and in San Francisco? This is like the late nineties. So it's, you know, the beginnings of uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah. I actually continue the uh, quantum entanglement piece uh, with the UK, as you know, right? So uh, uh, right, we have right. uh, two offices as a company, um, uh, one in California and uh, another one in, in the UK by London. Uh, so that's a theme, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, this was, uh, let's see. So I, I came over to the US um, in 1997 um, and uh, having passed all my master's exams back in Russia for graduation in the university there. The, the, the first year qualifier exams were super easy for me at Princeton. Um, so I passed all of them pretty much, you know, like six months in or something like that. Usually it's like takes a couple of years, but um, did that all in the, uh, in the first half of the first year. And I said, well, um, good timing because uh, we are now, uh, going to have you um, uh, join the uh, the next year's uh, group to select the experimental location. I was in experimental uh, physics, um, uh, and uh, I had to uh, select the experimental location for the rest of my studies for about four or five years, uh, getting PhD program. And um, the uh, U.S. Uh, had three locations of that of that type. Uh, one was in New York, um, the Brookhaven Lab, uh, Long Island, so pretty close uh, to Princeton. The um, the next one was in the Fermi Lab, uh, which is next to uh, Chicago, uh, sort of in the uh, in the cornfields uh, around Chicago, and then Stanford Linear Accelerator. And that whole trip, so they took us on the trip to all those three locations. The trip was in February, okay? We come back from that trip and they ask me, you know, which location you want to go to. Um, so after very long and hard deliberation, I, I picked California. That's how I ended up in California. I feel like it's fair to say you fit the definition of polymath very well, right? Because then you go to McKinsey, then you're at Google, and then you're founding another company, and then comes Zeravia, right? And so I'd love to get into Zeravia. Yeah. Right? So hydrogen electric aviation. But before we get there, there are uh, so many great resources on hydrogen and, and hydrogen fuel cells, uh, and I am not one of them. But what are just what are the first principles? What do we need to understand in terms of hydrogen as an energy source in order to understand Zeravia? Yeah, good question. Um... So, and, and in order to understand sort of how I got to that um, uh, useful piece about the background is, um, you know, in 2010, 11, I started the, uh, uh, my previous company, Electric Motor Works, which was um, a, uh, initially a um, uh, electric car conversion uh, company. We were building conversion kits for uh, gasoline and, and um, diesel uh, vehicles um, to convert them to electric, battery electric. Um, and then pivoted into the uh, uh, charging systems and smart charging systems became the largest uh, smart charging uh, network um, and software provider um, in the space. And then the company was acquired three years ago. Um, and that's when I started Zero Avit, right? So I'm in uh, sustainable transportation for, you know, give or take 10 years, uh, initially ground and now air. Um, 
So that's useful for understanding of the background because as part of the um, ground vehicle um, market, uh, I got to know very well the advantages and limitations of the batteries and hydrogen fuels because initially all of that was played out in the uh, in the ground vehicle space right so we had hydrogen cars and toyota honda and uh, hyundai and some others uh, but mostly these three and then we had battery electric cars from uh, eventually everybody right and we worked um, uh, at my previous company we worked with most of the major automakers um, uh, directly, um, so pretty uh, pretty closely uh, clued in on what's going on uh, from the you know energy source perspective. So the reason um, we think hydrogen is going to be big for aviation is um, because of the energy density of the fuel. Um, so that's or rather more precisely specific energy, right? Which is how much energy you can store in a pounds or kilogram of fuel and weight is everything for aviation right and that's partially also why um, you know batteries are very hard to imagine working in any kind of large aircraft uh, because the energy density is so low All right so uh, just to give some numbers uh, you know the latest and greatest uh, tesla packs are around 200 watt hours per kilo Right, uh, watt hour is a unit of energy, kilogram unit of mass. So at the battery pack level, you're talking about 200 watt hours per kilo. Jet fuel is 12,000 watt hours per kilo. Okay, and then hydrogen is 37,000 watt hours per kilo. So hydrogen is actually better than jet fuel by 3x. Batteries worse than jet fuel by 60x, right? So you have two orders of magnitude, 200x difference between battery and hydrogen. Uh, so that's fundamentally the first thing that you need to understand, right? Wh where you think about, okay, what is going to replace jet fuel in aviation? Um, and you know, clearly, two orders of magnitude is significant. Then the next thing you need to understand is looking at, you know, you could ask, well, why didn't it happen in cars, right? So the next thing you need to understand is the energy intensity of aviation as transportation mode versus everything else. And I actually did an article in Forbes on this uh, last year where we, we used a couple of dimensions to compare everything, all, all the uh, transportation modes. One dimension is energy intensity in percent of the vehicle weight that is allocated to fuel. Uh, so if you look at the passenger vehicle, uh, typical um, you know, consumer car, only 2% of your vehicle weight um, is allocated to fuel. If you look at the 737 max, 40% of your vehicle weight is allocated to fuel. So fully loaded, uh, fully fueled, uh, a 737, Boeing 737 is 40% uh, kerosene. Right, so that's 20x difference. Um, the second dimension is the um, uh, utilization, and you can approximate that with what percent of time is the vehicle in motion. Right, so energy intensity is one, but then the second one is how much of that are you using. Right, um, and if you look at again the uh, consumer vehicle, passenger vehicle, consumer-owned vehicle you have maybe 5% utilization, right? Because normally it sits parked um, in your driveway or at work or at the store, you're actually driving the vehicle, it's moving less than 5% statistically, less than 5% per day. 
if you look again at a commercial aircraft, it's 30, 40, 50% uh, of a day it's moving. So you combine those two and you look at various different um, transportation types on that chart, two-dimensional chart, and you see that cars are the absolute worst to put hydrogen in because there is no point. You know, you don't have utilization and you don't have energy density requirements, right? Because the energy intensity is so low. And the um, uh, airplanes, aircraft, is the best segment to put it in because you have extreme energy density or energy intensity requirements and you have extreme utilization. Um, so those two things, um, 200X better energy density and the extreme demand for energy density and utilization, that's what brings hydrogen as the best uh, energy storage. Now, hydrogen is not you know, purely, uh, sort of technically speaking, um, an energy source, it's an energy storage medium. Right, so it doesn't, you can't mine hydrogen. I mean, interstellar space and all that, you know, you could, but um, uh, on the earth, uh, you cannot, it doesn't exist in the in a free state, right? You have to um, extract it from, uh, uh, from substances. Most um, you know, uh, frequently now is done from natural gas, which produces CO2, which is not what we want to do. Uh, what we want to do is what's called green hydrogen production, which is electrolysis using electricity from uh, clean sources, or any renewable source, and splitting water into oxygen and hydrogen. And then hydrogen goes into uh, the vehicle, right? So effectively, think about hydrogen fuel cell-based system as a system electric powertrain that has a much, much, much better battery in it. Right, which is based on, you know, you refuel it with hydrogen and it's a, it's a flow battery effectively, right? If you're familiar with the term, right? There's, there are, there is a type of, uh, type of a battery that uh, operates on the, uh, on sort of the flow of reagents. So it's kind of similar to that, I guess, uh, conceptually. Uh, and it just can store energy in a much more um, energy dense way. And so is Zero Avia gonna own the entire life cycle? Uh, from the electrification of creating green hydrogen all the way through the aircraft and the airline itself? Or like what else needs to be solved in order for Zero Avia to succeed? Yeah, I think uh, majority of uh, what needs to be done is in the power plant uh, space, um, sort of engines, if you will. Um, aircraft, uh, people know how to build aircraft. Uh, we are, we don't, we're not going to build aircraft. We're not going to be an operator. Uh, you know, we have plenty of operators. They know how to do things. Um, it's the uh, it, you know fuel type and how to convert that fuel into uh, propulsion. That's where the, the the problems are. So that's what we're solving. And in that, most of our uh, technical uh, development R and D is focused on the engine, and some on the fuel production, right? Because the fuel is very important. Uh, that's the first question that we get from the operators. Uh, like, okay, it's great, you know, economics great, zero emissions great, all this is fine, but where are we gonna get this? What hydrogen, what is it? You know, how much is it? Where are we gonna get it? Uh, like, what do I do with it, right? So so we are looking to um, definitely uh, uh, play a big role there. Um, not so much on the technology side, because there are, again, uh, great electrolysis companies out there working with a few of them, but we're looking to uh, manage deployments 
of um, the fuel production and fuel dispensing at airports, and we're looking to control uh, that part of the supply. And so what would you say is like the longest pull in the tent right now for Zero Avia? Um, certification of the, uh, of the power plants for commercial operation. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's a, um, a pretty heavily regulated uh, space, aviation. And uh, at least in, well, actually worldwide, but um, since Boeing is in the United States, in, in the United States, we got uh, a very public display of that uh, as part of the, uh, you know, Boeing MAX uh, disaster, yeah, 737 MAX. Um, that was uh, out of commission for, I think, like 18 months, uh, following a couple of crashes because of uh, uh, some questionable uh, system design approaches and some software issues, um, uh, at least based on the public information. So um, it is, for a good reason, pretty heavily regulated industry. Uh, so in order to get the system up in the air with passengers, and even without passengers flying over people, um, it's a uh, it's a high calorie exercise um, and definitely a lot of requirements. Um, so that is uh, the biggest source of timing uncertainty uh, that we have uh, in the company, and that's why we are um, uh, we're pretty serious about um, getting the right level of uh, you know team uh, expertise on it uh, and the right uh, types of relationships. Uh, uh, with the regulators, with the government, uh, worldwide, really. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned that Zeravia has an office in London as well. Where do you think? It's kind of a two-part question, but where do you think? What country or countries have the best? No uh, pun intended, but like climate for hydrogen innovation. Uh, you know, I've seen and the European Commission they've committed like 1.3 billion to the to hydrogen. You guys have a partnership with the UK. It's part of Boris Johnson's 10 point plan. In the US, are we seeing the same things? Oh, we will. I'm pretty sure. Um, last uh, last four years in the US were not super eventful in that department. Uh, but um, I'm sure we'll see uh, some differences uh, going forward. Um, for us, uh, you know, UK was uh, outstanding, and uh, the level of support that we got from the government there, and uh, genuine interest um, actually in the uh, technologies uh, that we're developing, and the problem that we're solving is is very very strong uh, in the UK. They used to be, as you you might uh, have read or studied, um, they, they used to be the aviation superpower. Right back in the day, World War II, post World War II, right? That's that's um, that's all Britain, right, on the Allied uh, front, yeah. Um, and to 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 this day, you drive around on the south uh, and east of uh, England, and uh, there are uh, Royal Air Force bases uh, every five miles, right? Um, uh, military fields now mostly converted to. Uh, uh, you know, general operations, but um, aviation was super big uh, in UK, and they still consider that a critical industry. Um, and uh, as such, it is well regarded and supported by the government. Um, so we see a very good level of support there. Now, in Europe, there's probably more uh, support on the hydrogen side uh, than in the UK. So there's a little bit of a balance uh, between the two that uh, we'll see how we played. We think perhaps um, 
you know, the core development of the technology is uh, is UK based for us, um, but obviously deployment of the technology is going to be worldwide. And um, we think that um, continental Europe is definitely very um, supportive of hydrogen based deployments of technology. So we are getting operations up, uh, getting the uh, fleets converted, uh, getting the uh, uh, hydrogen infrastructure built. Um, so all of that um, uh, looks like uh, the governments have um, very strong um, interest in. And we hope that uh, we're going to see the same uh, in the U.S. as well over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah. And, and on that note, you've got kind of the stamp of approval from, I would say, like the uh, at least the wealthiest in the U.S. from the private side. Right. Um, partnership now or, or funding from a Bill Gates venture Amazon, Jeff Bezos, Climate Pledge Fund, do you th- are are they helping push along that, uh, or is, like the government, or is it just going to be we're going to see private industry bring hydrogen to the U.S.? Oh, I think it's a it's going to be a combination. Every major change like that. I mean, we're talking about rewiring the industry, right? It's a one and a half trillion dollars uh, worldwide, right? That's aviation industry today. And it's before pandemic, um, it was growing at five, 6% year over year. And we think that that growth rate will, will return uh, after we get you know, all vaccinated and all that kind of stuff. So um, you know, by 2050, it's going to be a you know, four or $5 trillion industry. And we're effectively rewiring that. Uh, and it has to be rewired. Um, because otherwise it's just not going to be uh, acceptable from the sustainability perspective, uh, neither from the governments uh, nor from uh, nor by people, right? Um, you know, people will just say, "Well, we're we're not going to do that," right? And you, you've you've seen that in Europe already. It started with Sweden, uh, the flight shaming uh, before the pandemic in 2019. Uh, we had a reduction of uh, travel uh, by 10% uh, by some counts uh, in Sweden because people said, well, you know, it's it's too bad for the environment. So this stuff will happen and uh, will have to happen quickly. Um, and I don't see a scenario when that quick of a significant change can happen without government um, support. Right. And, I, and I've seen that, you know, good government programs actually working um, in the ground transport uh, uh, markets, uh, you know, with my previous company and uh, that industry. Um, you know, we were able to uh, to move electric cars from uh, a novelty. Uh, nobody's interested in them to, uh, well, look at who's the biggest automaker now. Right. Totally. At least by market cap. Yeah. And so in terms of, but you, you're also fighting against like the Boeings of the world or maybe not like is Boeing on board. Are they, or are they lobbying? I'm not, I'm not fighting with Boeing. I'm not fighting with Boeing. Um, uh, I hope I'm not fighting with, with a lot of people uh, really. Um, we, we definitely uh, are uh, very friendly, very working well together with the aircraft manufacturers for sure. It's the it's the engine manufacturers uh, that I think it will be interesting to see uh, who's doing what uh, there. I frankly think that uh, you know things would go faster um, for all of us if uh, some major uh, manufacturers actually go along with the program. Yeah. Uh, so I hope uh, that they're not going to fight it with the um, existing incremental approach uh, to technology 
but actually genuinely new approach. And we think, of course, you know, hydrogen electric approach is the best, so they better do that. And I think it will help everybody, uh, including us. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> will it be ironic if GE-powered windmills are, uh, are, are creating the hydrogen for zero Avia engines and not GE engines or not? Yeah, I'll take it. In case you can't tell, Val is trying to change the world with Zero Avia. In the second half of the interview, I wanted to get into some of the less technical aspects and more understand what life is like for Val the human. A large part of the Net Zero journey is me figuring out how to match my passion for sustainability with my actions both at home and in the workplace. Deep diving into like your work a little bit, as CEO of Zeroavia, what do you spend most of your time doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, well, um, it changes. Uh, obviously, now we um, uh, we have just closed a major round. Uh, we won, you know, three additional grants. Um, so all of that, uh, I'm pretty involved in. Uh, in parallel with that, uh, team building is is a huge, hugely important task, right? And in, in any company that's uh, going after a mission like this, um, and in the industry like this, which is uh, you know it's a it's a long term uh, type enterprise, right? And um, e- stakes are high. It's it's not you know. No offense, but it's uh, it's different from uh, building a, a next Android app. Um, you know, you're actually taking people up in the air and um, uh, a serious piece of hardware, uh, high power, um, uh, high danger uh, type uh, uh, situations. So um, you, you have to have a, a certain type of a team uh, for that. So I spend a lot of time on that. Um, and uh, now that uh, my latest round is closed um, and we got um, uh, you know, confirmed funding for uh, the current program, I'm starting to think about uh, next programs. Nice. Would you say that fear or, or safety considerations are going to be a large part of the adoption for hydrogen electric aviation in terms of like a consumer? Like, I, I'm super stoked. I, I'm ready to have like zero emission flight. Am I like part of the broad society? Is that something you guys think about on a regular basis? Yeah, we think about it. Uh, we think about it and uh, we get the questions around this. Uh, so we are pretty well prepared from the uh, um, sort of rational perspective. Now, what we need to, and we think really uh, from the objective standpoint, uh, hydrogen can be safer than jet fuel in, in aviation. And there are several reasons for that. Not not going to geek out much uh, on it, uh, but like for example, um, you know, hydrogen leak, for instance, right? Uh, what happens with hydrogen uh, leaking from your tanks is it immediately leaves the area, and it's uh, you know much uh, lighter than air, uh, so it goes up uh, right away, and it's very hard, practically impossible to maintain explosive concentration of hydrogen in open air um, with, with a leak. Um, so very different from jet fuel, where you, you have heavy vapor sits on top of the spill and then you know ignites by things like hot breaks and things like that. So uh, hydrogen can actually be made safer as fuel 
than jet fuel. Now, this is sort of objective, rational perspective. Now, we have to translate that into a sort of subjective perception um, with the flying public, of course, right? And that's that will be a good part of the work uh, that we'll need to do. We recognize that. And, um, you know, the big thing is that uh, uh, on the ground transport, uh, the vehicles are um, uh, showing uh, a pretty good uh, safety record. Uh, there are over 50,000 hydrogen vehicles uh, now uh, on the in the ground um, applications, uh, mostly actually in commercial settings and material handling. And Amazon actually is using a lot of uh, you know, hydrogen forklifts and Walmart and all the all the warehouses and such. Um, and then there are over 10,000 now, I think, um, passenger vehicles in operation and over a thousand buses uh, all over the place. So pretty good uh, safety record uh, for the vehicles. Um, there are a couple of incidents on the fueling uh, station side um, over the last years. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to tighten that up. Um, but um, not, I think it is showing that it can be safer than, than fossil fuels. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this a little bit as well previously, but did the the you know lack of flying in 2020 did that negatively impact your partnerships with the airlines, or has it been a reset where they've been able to say, hey, you know, let's look at our business, and we're really excited about the potential of clean flying? Yeah, it was more of the uh, of the latter actually. Uh, so it it allowed people to have deeper conversations about the future it's because you know a you had you know lower utilization right so you you, you just had more time on you if you're an air air um uh airline executive right um you had after dealing with the initial crisis and all that you had probably a little bit more time to think uh, about things um and then the other piece was and still is uh, playing out is that a lot of the uh, airlines and generally aviation industry um, asked for government help um, through this crisis. And the government, uh, when it was willing to help, it also asked for things in return. And uh, uh, typically one of those things is sustainability, uh, part of the equation, uh, which um, helps us, of course, right? So the, the most, I think, visible example was uh, in France, where uh, French government, as a condition of uh, help to KLM Air France, uh, uh, put restrictions on sub 500 mile flying um, and uh, basically said, well, people should use rail because uh, uh, regional aviation is uh, uh, has higher emissions than even the um, sort of medium range aviation and international aviation on a per passenger basis. So we're not cool with that. And of course, the solution to that, we think, is not to ban flight. It's provide it's to provide a cleaner flight, right? And that's where we come in. And in general, philosophically, my uh, thinking personally is that you know we 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 shouldn't be talking generally speaking about getting back into the caves. Uh, we should be talking about better buildings, you know. Um, and when we have technology that can solve our problems, so we should solve our problems uh, and not say, well, you know, that that got too far. We better retreat. 
as a you know sort of approach to humanity solving its problems i think that's a that's a better way right and so hydrogen is one path to solve the problem but like what about sustainable aviation fuel where do you like where do you think those two will land is it going to be the equivalent of like what happened with cars in terms of hydrogen versus hybrid or, or electric or is it going to be a joint solution uh, i think over time uh hydrogen electric wins um, and the reason is uh, two reasons. One is by construction, sustainable aviation fuels, and I'm assuming you know not biofuel because biofuel is not going to scale to significant percentage of uh, our fuel use anyway. So it's it's going to be a minority of the solution anyway. So I'm talking about something that can scale with the market. Um, so for that, it's it's all about you know. The e-fuels, right? The uh, the electrofuels or liquid fuels that are produced from hydrogen, actually, uh, and then uh, carbon capture um, or carbon source um, synthesized together with hydrogen to produce liquid um, uh, liquid fuels, right? Jet fuel replacement. And by construction, that is more expensive than hydrogen, right? Because you you have to have hydrogen feedstock, right? So you have to produce hydrogen to begin with, and then you have to have an additional chemical plant on top to um, process that into fuel. You have to have carbon source, which is an expense. You have to have uh, energy inputs um, because you you need to put energy in order to uh, create uh, a fuel. So there is operating expense, and you have capital expense of the plant, right? So all of that will make that fuel more expensive. So that's a fuel production side. Then you take that fuel, put it in an aircraft, and already today, uh, fuel cell solution or hydrogen electric solution is more efficient than even the largest turbine that is in use today in aircraft. Uh, so everything else is worse, right? So the, uh, the smaller turbines, smaller aircraft, um, even worse. So the aircraft of the size that we are launching with um, in three years are half the efficiency of my current powertrain, right? And we're working on improving that efficiency. So you have more expensive fuel to begin with, and then you're putting it into uh, an engine type that is half the efficiency. So you just doubled your cost of fuel again, All right? So I think from that perspective alone, the fundamentals don't look very good for um, you know electrofuels. Maintenance costs are going to be always higher on the uh, fossil fuel side of things um, than on the electric side of things. And if you look at the cost profile of a typical operator, up to 50% of your direct operating costs are fuel and maintenance. All right. So uh, if both of those are much higher than you know the alternative uh, over time you know where things are going, right? Now, of course, there are challenges on the hydrogen electric side um, because it's just starting out and turbines been around for 50 plus years. Uh, but those challenges are engineering challenges and that's why we have companies like Zero Avia to solve them. I love it, I love it. Um, I wanna talk another little bit more about like what it's like to, to work in a startup, uh, although, this year, I feel like is growing past that pretty quickly. But two questions. First, how did you guys get your financing, get your first dollars to get the company started? Uh, well, the first dollars I just paid for it. I'm uh, I, up to this round. I was the largest individual investor in the company, so that helped. 
That's awesome. I love it. And I, not only that, so you're the, you're the, you were, or maybe still are the largest shareholder. So a lot of confidence there. And if I'm not mistaken, you conduct the test flights as well. That's right. Yeah. Now with, with the uh, first test flights that we did in the US, I did myself uh, all together. And now we have a uh, chief test pilot, uh, but I still fly um, as a co-pilot on all uh, first flights. Yes. That's incredible. Uh, so I want to be conscious of your time. So we'll kind of do a, a few like lightning round questions. And I, I think I already know the answer to this one, but green hydrogen, what's the future? Is it renewable energy and electrolysis or natural gas reforming and carbon capture? Yeah, come on, Nathan. You know, you know the answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, the, 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 the only question there is like, what's going to be the, uh, the zero emission electricity source? And that's an interesting question. Um, because there are some people out there who say, well, why don't we use, uh, you know, compact nuclear reactors? You know, that would be cool, right? So you have an airport and you have undergrounds, you have a small nuclear reactor that produces electricity to get your hydrogen, and then you have the local, uh, you know, refueling point, right? That's a little uh, out there, but, uh, well, that's an interesting uh, interesting question. But, but de definitely it's zero emission energy so electricity source um, and then electrolysis on site. Is Zero Avia going to be a monopoly? Uh, I hope not. You hope not. Peter Thiel might disagree with you, but uh, who who else will be out there? Well, we don't know, but um, I would hope that uh, we have more than one player because um, actually, with one player, it's harder to make progress um, in the in the market like this. Is it's harder to get the government on your side. It's harder to um, uh, get everybody to buy in um, into the solution, uh, and it's easier for the bad competition, which is you know fossil fuel, um, uh, basically the the status quo to to stay where you know where they're at. Yeah, so interesting. I. I... I'm, I didn't know if I wanted to go down this route, but so Shell is fossil fuel, right? But they're also investors. Like, how does that work? Are they hedging their bets? Are they fully like? Are they, they believers in they, the product? They want to do. They want to do better. They want to do better. I think you know the, these folks uh, and fossil fuel. I mean, there are different different companies, different approaches, right? And I'm, I'm not gonna name names, but. Um, I think people like Shell, um, they're they're on the good side of the uh, of the of the divide, if you will. And what what's happening there um, is that the reality of the modern world is such that you know we we can't just turn off the fossil fuel tomorrow, right? So it would be hugely counterproductive. Like you know, the things would stop. Right, so uh, people realize that, but they uh, also, and then they support the economy as it is. But at the same time, they're trying to push as much as possible, as quickly as possible, for the transition. Right. So Shell is in that sort of camp. Right. They're like, well, you know, we can't drop all of this because then you guys will die. Right. Like that—that's what would happen, really. Um, but we need to push this over to the more sustainable way as quickly as possible. And as we push it, of course, we want to be there to catch it, right? So that, that's what they're doing. So Val, like based on that, should I fill up my car with Shell gas and not Exxon? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, there is a hierarchy. I would say, you know, uh, out of the existing um, uh, fuel players out there, fossil fuel, oil and gas guys, um, Shell is probably the most uh, forward-looking. Um, then you would have BP probably, but there's not much BP in the United States. Uh, and then, um, you know, you have on the bottom, you have, and I don't know where the ranking between the two of them, but, um, you know, Exxon Mobil and, uh, Chevron, they're not doing much really. Right. Um, so they're just kind of slogging along. Uh, that's, that's a type of perception that, uh, that I get, but Shell, you know, they made a lot of investments in, um, in the, uh, in the electric vehicle infrastructure space, um, they required a number of companies uh, that uh, you know we we used to work with quite closely back in the days when I was working in the uh, in the vehicle uh, on the ground vehicle side. They're actually a pretty large um, electric utility, uh, and a lot of people don't know about you know that they they're actually uh, one of the largest electrical suppliers in in the UK, for example, Shell Energy. And uh, they have very, uh, very large renewable assets and they're increasing the renewable generation assets. So uh, I'm sure, you know, within the company, there are different, uh, uh, you know, political fact factions and all that. But um, uh, on the uh, on the overall basis, uh, they seem to be interested in doing uh, the right thing. Got it. Uh when will I be able to fly on a Zeravia powered aircraft and will you be the pilot? Hey, um, you uh, will be able to fly probably this year. Um, not as a, you know, we can't take pay in customer, uh, customers and all that, but we can uh, do the experimental flights uh, uh, linked to the operations of the company. Okay. Um, uh, for the commercial uh, utilization, uh, about three years out, uh, as we have uh, our first product certified and installed in the certificated aircraft, uh, we look to start commercial operations in about three years. Okay, I love it. Do you already know who the first operators are going to be? Operators being airlines. Um, well, um, we have about 15 uh, LOIs with the operators now. Um, some of them are semi-public. Uh, the only like real public is British Airways. Um, uh, that uh, we, we did a release on that and a press release on that in December. Um, there are 14 more uh, out there. Yeah. So we'll be, uh, we'll be making it more public and sort of packaged announcements around that uh, later this year. Great. I hope a few are in the US. Uh, what do you say to people interested in working at Zero Avia? Well, we're hiring, so that's good. Um, that would be a, a good match. Um, and we have, uh, you know, on our website, we have some uh, openings. Um, so look at that and then uh, send an email to careers at zeroavia.com. Any specific skill sets or qualities you're looking for? Uh, we're looking for people who are operating well in the entrepreneurial settings and not afraid of... Uh, a certain degree of ambiguity, and uh, that is that was actually a reasonably challenging to uh, find candidates, senior candidates like that in the aerospace industry, uh, because it was just doing the same thing for the last fifty plus years, right? So it's like, you know, you look at the uh, uh, at the business development people, and uh, what they do is they just you know, sell a slightly better version of what they sold, you know, for the last 10 years, right? And they do it for the whole career. Um, so 
when you know you can't see that type of a, uh, a profile successful in something as disruptive as this, right? So that's been actually on the hiring side, especially on the business side. That's been our biggest challenge uh, so far. So that that I think is you know people have to think about that a little bit. Nice. Okay, last question. Thank you so much for your time. I ha I had a lot of fun, uh, and I hope you did as well. How much of what you do is because uh, how much of what you do is driven by like a desire for a sustainable future versus this is a, a large cap. We live in a capitalist society. This is a large market uh, failure that I can solve. I think most of the motivation comes from uh, the first part. The the. The second part, you know, frankly, it's maybe maybe uh, maybe a ten percent, twenty percent part of the motivation. Um, the the half of I don't know if I can put numbers on it, but let's try. Half of the motivation is from solving sustainability problem that is going to be, I believe, firmly that is going to be the largest sustainability problem we're going to have after we solve the rest of it, and we're on track to solve the rest of it, right? Or most of the rest of it. So that's half. The thirty percent or forty percent is. It's a big problem to solve, right? It's just the uh, uh, challenging problem. I'm a scientist, uh, you know, by training and uh, an engineer, right? So it's like, what's 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 a better thing to 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 do to engineer? Just give him a big problem, right? Uh, so that's a big part of it. And then the remaining part, yeah, you know, if you if you do that, you make a lot of money. But uh, um, but that's you know that's that's the last in the stack. Got it. We'll have a we'll have we'll have um. When you guys solve it, it will be the uh, first prize in the Sustainability Olympics International. Right, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Val, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was great. Anything else you'd like to add? No, it's good. And uh, don't forget that careers at uh, zeroavia.com. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be with you. Thanks again to Val for joining us today. You can find him on LinkedIn or reach out via careers at zeroavia.com. Since we recorded this episode, Exxon has been pressured by activist investor Engine Number no. 1 to take action against climate change. In response, Exxon committed to spending $3 billion on climate action by 2025, but they're still planning to spend billions more on gas in the next five years. Cheers to you, Engine Number no. 1. At the same time though, I just booked tickets to see my family on an airplane. So who am I to talk? I'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. And you can join the conversation about Net Zero Living on our weekly Clubhouse office hours by following at the Net Zero Life. Office hours are Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific time and 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can also email me at nathan at thenetzerolife.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Net Zero Life. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt original music composed by Climb On Band. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I can't stress enough how helpful this is. Next week, we're interviewing a founder who's spending 100% of her time and 100% of her R&D budget on carbon removal technology. I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.